Welcome to Last First Date Radio, featuring interviews with experts in dating, relating, and mating in midlife. And now, here's your host, Sandy Weiner. This is episode number 434 with Melanie Chartoff, getting married at 65 for the very first time. So excited to have Melanie here. Hi, everybody. I'm Sandy Weiner. Welcome to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late for love. And this is evidenced as Melanie got married at such a late stage in life. And I just want everyone to know that it is really never too late. And I also believe that a woman of value naturally attracts the respect and rewards she deserves in life and in love. I love this concept of woman of value so much that I wrote a whole book on it. And it's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. Here's a Here's my book. And I, uh, I included uh, 30 steps, tips and exercises for stepping more fully into your value because I believe that when you really know your worth, all good stuff happens. So get a copy of the book after we're done with this show. And every week I share a tip from the book. And this week's tip is to listen to understand. We are pretty bad at really listening to understand. And Stephen Covey first talked about this, where listen, listen to understand instead of listening to be heard. Um, we often just want to be heard. We just want to get our point in. But to really be present with somebody is huge. So my, my challenge to you this week is to really spend a little bit more focus when focus time, when you're listening to somebody and, and really check in with them and see if you're really getting what they're saying, because we often don't even do that. So that little step of just checking in and seeing if you get it will change all your relationships. Before I bring Melanie on, I also just want to let you know that I have a fantastic Facebook group for women over 40. It's called Your Last First Date. And the women in the group are, most of them are single, but we have happily married couples, uh, women, not couples, we only have women in there. Uh, women who actually have met and uh, married while they were members of the group. And it is a group that is focused on your personal growth, on positive messaging, not um, being stuck in limiting beliefs and and bashing and hating on men, that doesn't get you anywhere. So if you want to go on your last first date, join your last first date. And now for my guest, Melanie, Melanie Charta. She is, she started off as an actor, often on Broadway, and she's best known for the characters that she created on shows like Fridays, Seinfeld, Newhart, and Rugrats as the voice of Dee Dee Pickles, the mom. Her work has been included in many publications, including the Jewish Journal and three editions of Chicken Soup for the Soul, Odd Woman Out, is her first book. And she talks about this journey of getting married for the first time at 65. So happy to have you here, Melanie. Oh, it's great to be here. I've been reading up on you, and I wish I had you 30 years ago. Or I wish I was ready to listen to somebody like you 30 years ago when I was really in the fever of biological alarms clicking and um, clanging, actually. So, clanging. Um, <laughs> you're doing a great service. Oh, thank you. Well, I, you know, we spoke a little before the show. We have some overlap where both of us worked in Nickelodeon and 
Um, and, you know, I deal with women every day who think that they're over the hill. And I was telling you that at 28, I thought I was over the hill. I thought that my time was running out to have children, to get married. I lived in Manhattan and thought all the good men were gone. They were all married or, you know, nobody wanted to really settle down. And I was just like, time is ticking. And, you know, and now I look back in 28 as I was a baby. I had no idea who I was. But, you know, you waited and you got married at a later stage in life. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. And um, you have said that you played many roles as a human being before you actually became one. So tell us what you meant by that. Well, because um, my parental situation was so chaotic. Um, my sister and I played roles to ch charm them, to distract them, to make them laugh, uh, to keep them together. And um, so I, I discuss in my upcoming book how I played a number of roles to please them, depending on their moods or my grandparents' moods. I would adapt myself. And so I could never make a decision about who I was any day unless I knew the room I'd be in, what kind of audience I would have for my behavior in order to survive. I mean, it truly felt like a survival tactic. So as you can imagine, being a very good actress with a facility to become all kinds of different women, even when I was very, very young, I could imagine and channel older women, gay women, all sorts of different women when it came time to choosing a mate, not being quite sure what I wanted, did I want a marriageable father type husband who was going to give me children? Or did I want a fun, exciting, stimulating, world traveling uh, adventurer like me? Um, so my personality would change depending on the guy I was attracted to. I would adapt to suit his needs because at that time in my 20s and 30s, my hormones were more rampant than my intelligence was. And um, I, I think I went on hormones in my 40s as I became menopausal. And this prolonged and actually kicked up my sexuality a notch. So I continued to choose past the point of my own fertility, uh, sexy guys, fun guys, exciting, slightly dangerous guys. And then I chose a very marriageable guy um, very sweet and supportive, very much a feminist. And we spent many years together, but I started to become very successful, which was a disadvantage in our relationship because he was a producer and he was not successful. And I was on a show called Rugrats and another show called Parker Lewis and doing commercials, doing all sorts of things. And it made him feel emasculated. It made me feel defeminized to have a man who didn't have his own power financially in our relationship. Unfortunately, that's what it came down for to for him. Um, his self-worth had a lot to do with how many deals he had going. And when I had three or four deals going, I felt great about myself and felt I had to take care of him, which of course got us into a very sorry state a number of years into the relationship. I bought a house, he moved into my house, but I own the house and he was a homemaker. I mean, he would do the decorating, he would make the beds and put a mint on the pillow in the morning. I mean, he was so fastidious about my home, but I really didn't need a homemaker. I, I could afford a maid. I needed a man in the relationship. So that, those 
few years, and we were great friends and supported one another in our careers greatly, left me very confused and disappointed about what would be good for me in a relationship. And, you know, as you say, we all feel like we're over the hill where there's always going to be another hill. Beyond the hill, you're sliding down. Um, I would go into mourning after every relationship, depression, despondency, self-flagellation about what I should have done different, differently or how I should have chosen in the first place differently. But the hunger to nest was so strong. You know, that's a biological thing nature does to us. Uh, when you're in your mid to late 30s, it gets excruciatingly intense. And my chooser was not healthy. I uh, looked at men like men in commercials who had children and were good fathers, you know, the husbands carrying the babies. But those men weren't really right for me. It was very confusing. So I have a number of sections in my book uh, in which I talk about the dilemma, that dilemma of will I make it and will I choose properly in time to be a mom or am I not cut out to be a mom? And I eventually learned I was really not cut out to be a mom. I didn't have the selflessness and the courage uh, to take a child through the difficult, through the sick days, through the because I was emulating my own mother who was more queasy than loving. Her squeamishness was bigger than her affection. She was easily repulsed by my sister and my illnesses, by our rashes, by our coughs. And um, so my motherly instincts were pretty nil. I was a great buddy to children. I still am. But I did not have those selfless motherly instincts. And that made me feel very sad about myself for a while. Um, and then I had an ovarian cyst in my late 40s. I was 49. And the doctor wanted to take all my woman parts out because of this simple cyst. And I went into a very big self-confrontation for a while about, well, wasn't that my womanhood? Would I still be a woman? Would I still want to have sex? Um, and I went on a year of research and holistic healing, jumping on trampolines, being upside down on trapezes, trying to shake this thing loose from my right ovary. And then because I had been since, uh, since uh, I was a virgin till I was 22 and such a wholesome marrying kind without a kind to marry into my 30s, I decided I would have one last free love liberated journey. So I approached men that I knew through work or social spheres who I knew were lovely guys and asked if they would help me medically. And they were so generous in wanting to help me medically to get rid of this thing that was clinging on to my womanhood. <laughs> so that was quite a, a six months. I, I, I hit myself up on hormones, you know, testosterone and estrogen and put myself in heat veritably. So um, every man I met seemed like a possibility for sex now, not for marriage. And so I got it out of my system in my 50s. I had my free love, liberal kind of journey then. And I thought, you know, until that age, I'd had maybe six men in my whole life, six or seven men. And they were all white and they were all a little older than me, uh, a little taller than me, sweet. And I thought it would be biased for me not to freelance. So I tried different colors, uh, faiths, heights, appearances, astrological signs. And um, I always was honest. I'd let them know I was only interested in one thing. I had them sign a non-disclosure agreement. 
<laughs> they had to show me their AIDS cards, AIDS negative cards. I did the same. And um, I got it all out of my system in my early 50s. Then I was on the hunt. And by then, um, online dating was available. Since I was not a bar hopper, I tried a, a year on eHarmony, which didn't work out. I tried a year on JDate, which didn't work out. And as a last resort, I went on Match.com in my 60s. And I decided this time I wouldn't wait for whoever chose me. I would choose. So I found only two men in all my harvesting that I wanted to write to. I wrote to one. This is the story of my last first date. I wrote to, let's call him letter A. And um, I went out with him. He was a lovely guy. I told him I was going to New York to avoid going out with him the following week uh, because I wasn't getting a body feeling about him. And I felt like if I didn't get a bodily feeling of attraction or affection, there was nothing probably in it. And I had sort of no feeling about him except friendship, friendliness. And I said, I was going to New York. And he said, well, my ex-girlfriend with whom I lived for many years has an apartment in New York. She rents out by the night. Would you be interested or by the week? I said, yes, I'd love to rent it for a week. This, this is wonderful. Let's call her ex, uh, his, his ex. So then on my um, second choice, I met someone named S. And I thought he was the one almost immediately. And luckily he felt the same. And during that week I had told A that I was going to be in New York. I met with S and we had like four hours of conversation, then fine dining, then laughing. And then he told me that he was seeing someone else for about six weeks. And I said, thank you. That's lovely of you to tell me, but all my excitement retracted a bit in self-protection because I was not one who enjoyed players I don't like promiscuity, uh, except when I was going through my period of heat. <laughs> and that was for health reasons, of course, it was for health reasons. So um, he said, I'll end it. And I said, well, don't do that because of me, because we don't know what we'll be. We've only met once. Um, but he continued to only ask me out for weeknights, which made me realize that I was his backup weeknight girl while he was stripping this other woman on the weekends. <laughs> So finally, at one of our lovely dinners, I said, I'm not going to see you anymore while you're still seeing someone else. It's not fair to her. It's not fair to me. And we can't really progress while you're sexually and romantically involved with someone else. I'm going off to New York. And um, when I get back, we'll see where we are. And he said, okay. So I went off to New York and I went to visit my mom in Connecticut. And um, letter A, emailed me. He said, would you like to go hear music when you get back? My ex-girlfriend X's apartment in New York is not available. I'm very sorry. And are you going out with somebody named S? And I said, yes, but how would you know that? He said, because my ex, X, just called me crying because she'd been going out with S for six weeks and he just broke up with her to go out with you. Oh and I God. said, well, how does she know that? How do you know that? He said, because I was bragging about you because she had showed me pictures of S and I showed her your profile. And then um, she noticed that he and I, A and S, had both friended you on Facebook at the, on the same day. And so she deduced that it was you. What are the odds of this, Sandy? I mean, <laughs> like at this creepy love quadrangle. I've only seen oh you a limited amount of time. 
And it was just the quirkiest thing. And I thought, well, this is fate. It either means, means this is going to break S and I apart or it will bring us closer together, this harrowing, hurt, hurt, hurting feeling, feeling. Meanwhile, X writes to me on Facebook and says, S is a two-timer. He led me on. We've been sleeping together for weeks. I thought he was serious about me. I thought we were the one for each other. And I thought, oh, I really, this is all too much information. <laughs> really, I don't want to get this involved in his sorry state. I've only met him about three times and we're already in this creepy situation. So I said to her, well, sometimes men that reject us seem more important than they really will be in retrospect. And I don't know if he's the one for me. I'm very sorry, but I wish you the best of luck in your search. And then I thought, he's not for me, he's a player. And he hurts women and I don't need that. I've had that. So I was about to go on his, uh, his match.com profile and say it's over. And I saw his profile had been taken down and it said, S has left the site. Maybe he found the one, maybe you will too, match.com. And then two minutes later, he called me and asked if he could pick me up at the airport on Saturday, which was a weekend date night. And I said, yes. And he waited for me. I was supposed to get in at seven. I got in like at two in the morning because of storms on the East Coast. And he picked me up and he took me to an all night diner for breakfast. And he picked up the check and it's a conversation that we've been having ever since. Oh so that God. was my last <laughs> first date. It was at some diner and we had steak and eggs <laughs> together ever since. And um, it took a while. There were a lot of differences to work through, philosophical. Um, but we are so happy. I mean, I thought maybe the pandemic lockdown, which we're in the midst of right now, would be difficult for us. But we're actually like Adam and Eve in Eden. We are so in love more than ever enduring the hardships together, supporting us through these transitional times where we become online creatures instead of human face-to-face -face creatures. Um, and I'm a lucky and happy person, happier now than I was ever happy in my earlier years. Wow, what a great story. And I wanna reflect on a couple of things that I'm hearing. One is that, well, I, I just, I love your evolution as you went through life, you know, with dating and relationships and how you needed to have your last fling with the sex and, and just, just really get it out of your system and try a lot of different kinds of men, which is very helpful, I think. We, there are times when, like after the end of a relationship, for example, sometimes after a divorce, women just need to explore their sexuality. And it's, you were safe, but you were also open. So I love the openness and the safety and the standards. And what I'm hearing over and over are that your standards became much more clear. What you wanted, who you were, what you would and wouldn't settle for. And with the man who became your husband, you were clear, I don't want to date a player. I don't want to date you if you're breaking other women's hearts. I don't want to date you if you are dating her while you're dating me. And he stepped up, not because you forced him, you didn't give him an ultimatum, you stated who you were and what was important to you. And I love that. Mm, me too. I would say my self-worth elevated as I stopped pursuing acting as ardently. You know, I worked a lot on many different series and I worked hard and I was exhausted a lot of the time. 
but I started becoming a writer in my 50s, getting published a lot, um, not making as much money as I do as, as an actor, but feeling a sense of satisfaction because this was all mine. There were no producers putting their two cents in, um, just uh, publications that wanted me. And I wrote a musical, a two-character musical about a therapist and a patient who is so screwed up she can only sing to get her feelings out. And so he has to learn to sing to heal her and they both heal. So um, I'd had a big success with it. It was running at a theater here in Hollywood. And uh, I was feeling really good about me at that time and about my future at the age of 63, which was unique. I never thought I'd feel that way at 63, but I was feeling that the piece inside me that I had, that was hard won for me, uh, came after many decades of therapy, um, self-evaluation and spiritual work. The piece inside me was more important than any guy who would disrupt that piece. So my priority had really changed. I wanted a relationship in which I could maintain my peace. And uh, it took a lot of interviewing and evaluation to figure out what that man would be like. He would have his own work. He would have children. I very much wanted to be a parent in some form. Unfortunately, his children were already prefab and grown. And very <laughs> sad in their ways, his daughter was already engaged. You know, she, 23, she had an engagement ring on her hand, like this big rock. And she's been married now for nine years. Um, she does not want to have kids. She's a, a Stanford uh, guidance counselor and therapist and social worker. And she doesn't see that she wants to bring a child out into the world right now. So my younger um, stepson is a player. And I don't see him getting married and having children anytime soon between you and me. He may say so, but I don't feel that coming. And I so wanted to have babies in my lap. So the freakiest thing happened about four months ago. I've been mentoring a young girl uh, for uh, since she was 11. She's a Hispanic legal alien, but very bright. And I have been mentoring her since we got her into college and since she's graduated with her degree in social work and since she's been in the working world. And I was at her wedding and then she got pregnant and she asked me if I would be her child's other grandmother because her child only has one grandmother. So on Friday, I'm going to meet my God grandchild. Wow. Julie Santiago. So, um, you know, I've done a lot of creative visualization. I have to say it takes a long time, but a lot of my visualizations have come into some form of realization, not spot on, but even better, you know, than I, I imagined in a lot of cases. So um, I, I just that. continue to keep a positive outlook. Mm -hmm. And um, I've had dark days. Like we've all had very dark days, especially when you don't have anybody at home to support you when you're living alone. If you get dark days, it's very important yeah. to establish a community. I have online communities uh, that I'm a part of that are very supportive. People I've never met, but that I love, that I have unhugged hugs in my heart for because they've been so helpful to me and I to them, which binds mm -hmm. them to me. So I've been talking so much, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have such fascinating stories. I, I want to say that often the visualization is really important. It's, it's, I, and I recently did a podcast with somebody who is a hypnotist and she talked about visualizations a lot and how it's, it brings out a felt sense of what, how you want to feel when whatever you want happens. And a lot of people talk about that and I totally agree. It's not like 
I'm going to have this house in Malibu and it, you know, and this giant rock on my hand. And it's, it's really, how do I want to feel with the right person? And how do I, you know, so for you, even having a grandchild, being open to the possibility of it, not looking the way you imagined it to look mm -hmm. is a really important piece of not controlling the outcome, but being open to how it how it happens. And I think a lot of people miss opportunities because they're just looking for this one thing in this one way. And you could have the most amazing people in your life and you're completely not even seeing them because you have this idea. And so for you all your life, you know, looking at examples and media of what a husband should be or what a family looks like and who you should be and all this stuff that isn't true to you and isn't even true to most people. I mean, the, the way media, the media paints relationships and doesn't look at conflict resolution and all the stuff that we really need to know if we want to have a healthy relationship as opposed to, you know, you're going to know it the minute the person walks in the door and it's going to hit you over the head and you'll never have a fight. That's the sign of a healthy, <laughs> I mean, we're fed so much BS that to even get to the point where you were able to go from, and I wanna also point to this, which is the codependency of your childhood where you were people pleasing and trying to morph into something to please others in your family to who you became in relationship and the evolution of being an interdependent instead of a codependent. I mean, that's huge. So I just wanna, wanted yeah, to point I, that out I too. I held into that. My mom left my dad at 65 after wow. a horrible, horrible marriage, which was very impactful for my sister and me. Um, and she and I went to codependence anonymous meetings in New Haven together. She came to my therapist with me out here. I gotta hand it to my mom. She did a lot of work on herself belatedly but she did a lot of work on herself. And my, my mother actually fell in love in her early 60s too. And I was thinking to myself, was I on some stupid path to emulate my mother without really knowing it? Always. Because it's just so <laughs> coincidental that she got divorced at 65 and I got married at 65. Yeah. I mean, come on. So <laughs> I felt like at some level, I realized I couldn't be happily married unless my mother was happy in her own and not, and not jealous of me. She was jealous of me when I had a good relationship going on, but she loves my husband, Stan. First of all, he's a psychotherapist mm. of 35 years, he's a PhD. And she feels like she's a, a psychotherapist because my father, father was so psychologically damaged. So she approved of him right off. He came courting her, got down on one knee, asked her to be his mother-in-law. I mean, <laughs> What can I say? He's the perfect guy for me. He's hilariously funny. And um, it wasn't a big erotic charge, Sandy. It was more like a familial charge that I had with him. He felt like family. And I knew when I met him, even if he had someone else, we would be friends at some point because we had mm -hmm. so much to talk about. We both studied character, um, behavior, psychological behavior. He is a therapist, me as an actor, as a writer now. Um, we just have endless things to talk about. And when That's we work wonderful. things out, um, we've both done the Imago process. Uh -huh. You're aware of that, very yes. helpful mm -hmm. to keep fights from escalating and loss of tempers. Um, so we have a lot of tools 
and after having both done so much work on ourselves, uh, we are much more easily adaptable than we might have met. We might have had we met in our 30s or 20s. Mm. And I'm glad he got the two kids out of the way so that I can benefit from them. But, you know, unlike my God grandchild, they don't even live in the same town. They live up north in San Francisco areas. So I will actually have a God grandchild in my lap in town, mm. which I might not have had, had yeah. um, my kids up north had kids. So anyway, I'm really mine, lucky. Mine live in Israel. So it's, you know, I don't uh, get to, especially now during COVID, I, I can't travel and see them. And yeah. it's, thank God for FaceTime, but I have been there for every birth and every everything as much as I could be until we got hit with this. But it is, it's, you know, family can be also, family can be people that you mentor, family can be friends, family can be so many things, especially if you grow up with dysfunction. And, um, but, but you know, you, you had great survival skills, like you were adaptable, you learned how to survive by being other characters until you found you. Well, I actually got this character <laughs> that, I'm, <laughs> that I'm pretending or actually being right now, um, uh, doing a, a talk show, a, a late night comedy show called Fridays, which was like Saturday Night Live back in the 80s. And I was cast as the newscaster. So I would use my own name on the screen by which everybody in America began to know me. It was very strange becoming a, a known figure. Um, and so I realized if I snapped into that professional demeanor and that professional voice, um, I could keep control of myself. So I really committed to being that character the rest of my life. It was the one that went on talk shows back in the day when, when I was a desirable talk show guest and um, still sticks with me. It was the one that went dating. It was a really strong persona, uh, calm, pretending not to have any anxiety even though it did have a flutter of anxiety. I, if I connected with my voice and my body language appropriately, I could quell my anxiety. And so I teach that now. I teach creating a persona, even if you're an introspective introvert and incredibly shy, creating a persona that can go out and talk for you, get you what you want in terms of your professional life or your personal life. So I work one-on-one -on -one with people all over the world now. Um, I think you do the same virtually and coach them for, toward their desired goals, to create a persona that's strong and can melt a glass ceiling, you know, in a man's world. I, have, I work with a couple of women in Australia that are really stuck in a patriarchal corporate agriculture system and trying very hard to get positions of some merit, not just positions, but the respect that the, those would garner. So I, um, I'm very fulfilled by this with my writing, my husband, and the coaching, I feel like I have a fuller life almost than I've ever had. And I'm 71. Mm, well, you're making a huge difference in people's I, lives. I which, think I am, that makes me feel good. It's not all about me, it's about them. Yeah, and, and you uh, don't need approval. Like the whole acting world, and you and I spoke before the show that my ex-husband is a performer and he also was a voice actor on Dora the Explorer and we had our wow. show on, on Nickelodeon. And so knowing he actually became an Orthodox Jew when I met him because he needed the grounding of something that was going to keep him from just that constant, you know, if you get heckled in a crowd and then you're, you just feel devastated. 
And I, I've seen so many people in showbiz who were really messed up. I mean, they don't know who they are. They, they are all about the ego. And true relationships, healthy relationships happen when you can put ego aside, when you can really access your essence, your inner self, the inner guidance of who you really are that's really what connects. And that kind of intimacy is, is based on opening and vulnerability and, and really showing who you are. So I love that. I love that you're doing this coaching. I, I've seen, I mean, I do a lot of communication and skill, skill building and boundary work with my clients. And so many people come to me and say, this is just who I am. You know, I'm terrible at speaking up. I'm terrible at marketing myself. I so, and I'm like, I was too, like I never would have had a show. I never would have gotten in front of a camera. It was, my husband was the camera guy. You know, I was behind the scenes. But if you keep that mindset that that's not me and I am not that, you will always be who you think you are, which is smaller than you really are, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of us were put in this position to be subservient to men and lower on the totem pole prenatally. I mean, we're born, I personally am older than you. I was born into that philosophy. I had a mom that was very submissive, uh, not terribly aggressive, uh, didn't have her own power, didn't have her own skill set or her own money. Um, and so I uh, had to break out of that. My father and the fathers of my generation who had been in the armed services. They believed in respect and discipline. And my father governed my mom, my sister and me like we were in some sort of platoon and he was the lieutenant. We almost had to salute every morning. I mean, oh he wanted God. to start the day with respect even if it was fake respect. And that really kind of caused a split in my sister and me. You mm -hmm. know, yeah, I had to get the hell out of there to become a human being, I really did. I, I pretended my whole way through school and through uh, my life with my parents. I think I left home when I was just turning 16 and I never went back to that idea of home. I didn't really have a home until I bought this house uh, 30 years ago. I mean, not everybody can buy a house and I just felt like it's so big. I don't know, even know where to sit in my house. I have so many rooms to sit in. And it was such a sense of pride and value that that gave me, you know, being able to write, being able to maintain a home. Um, yeah without a husband, without anybody helping me. I didn't have to kiss anybody's ass for money. So um, I feel really fortunate right now, Sandy, and I didn't always, God knows, mm. I just didn't always. Yeah, and it makes sense growing up in a home with a, a mom and a dad like that, that you, you saw your way to a good life as you know, the path was through power, through money, through success through not being subservient. Mm -hmm. And so many women take away that message. I, I once had a client from Vietnam who her mother's message to her and all of her sisters, they had a, a large family where she was pulled out of school very young to work with the family's business. And, and her father was abusive. And her mother would say, don't ever depend on a man, don't ever depend on a man for anything get a good education, make a lot of money. And that's all that's important. You can change a man like you can change your shirt, but you need your own money. And that was what she took away. And she had two or three failed marriages until she came to work with me and realized that her desire for freedom, 
they were all about freedom. Like money was going to give her freedom and power. It was all, they weren't really healthy values. They were all based on fear, not on love, not on expansion. And so the work that we need to do is to look at our values and where do they come from? And, and are they really ours? Or are they something that somebody threw on us mm. and told us we needed, right? Mm -hmm. Well, at this point, I want to plug my book, Read Sandy's, yes. read Sandy's <laughs> book, everybody. And then when you want some lighthearted satire on the same subject, read Odd Woman <laughs> Out. This is just the, uh, the proof copy. It's not the final copy. But I wrote Odd Woman Out because I always felt like the odd, quirky woman who did not fit in. And I'm talking about with women either. It took me a long time to get comfortable with women because my sister and my mother weren't themselves. They were all fighting for their own survival. So I didn't really know how to be with women. I knew how to manipulate men, but I didn't know how, I didn't want to manipulate women. I just wanted to be, be one of them. Yeah. Um, so I met a man who was the odd man out and mm -hmm. between us, we've created an evenness, you know, two odd people out. And uh, we're both very highly sensitive and quirky. So a lot of the stories in my book are satires of the kind of mistakes that I made when I was young and didn't know I was making. If you learn from your mistakes, I seem to have had a lot of mistakes I needed to learn from. I need to make every mistake possible in the book in order to learn, rather than just reading about it in your book or listening to it on somebody's show. Um, when I was younger, Pat Allen was the, the you at the time. She was the coach, she wrote a book called Getting To I Do meaning if you really want to get married, the things you do. And as I was a, a rabid feminist, most of the women that came to her were, we didn't understand that there was a bi biological factor involved in courtship, um, that you should be strong and confident, but not scary, that you should love yourself and be lovable, uh, feel empathy for the man you're with. He's not out to hurt you. He's just being who he is. Um, and letting the man pay. That was a very important precept for her. Um, and letting a man be a man. Like, even if there are things that you can do, leave something left over that a man might do for you. You know, let him open the door. I kind of like that courtliness. He won't always have to open the door, God knows. I can open my own doors. But uh, wait a moment at the door to see if he'll reach to open it. Um, wait by your car door, see if he opens it. Um, these little things are tells. They tell if a man will respect and cherish you. You do want a man, because they're bigger in size for the most part, to be somewhat protective. And that's why I found dating fathers of children, um, they had that innate paternal protective quality. Uh, they already had it built in. So I was fortunate to find an older man who provided just about everything I wanted. He's a feminist. His mother was very successful. Um, he's protective. Um, I feel protective of him too, because of his sensitivities. And um, his kids are very self-reliant. They make a very good impression uh, for him. You know, they show that they were well cared for and by their mom too. She did a very good job with the heavy lifting that I don't have to do. So um, you are right on your time. Sandy, with what you're sharing with women. And because of the pandemic that we're in right now, dating has become a whole other thing. You really do get to take your time. You're forced to really listen. 
forced to really get honest answers about somebody's daring in the atmosphere, whether they have a pod that's safe. Uh, can you actually meet? Uh, you see each other unmasked, you know, on these Zooms and Skypes, but in person, you will see yourselves in masks until you feel safe and trusting and someone has answered sufficient questions for you to unmask. I mean, it's it's like the, the, the preliminary losing of virginity and uh, exposing one's vulnerability. It's a very trusting thing to take off your mask in somebody else's presence now. Yeah, yes, so. it is. It's a whole other world. Um, I teach a whole course on dating during the pandemic <clears throat> because it became such an issue where people were confused in the beginning, like, can I date at all? Should I take a break? And this was when we thought it was a two week, two month thing that's now who knows how long. Um, this, I, I love the life lessons you shared and um, what you learned. They're really important lessons of, um, I think a lot of strong, successful women are the ones who struggle the most. You know, they become so independent that they scare away men, that men don't think there is a place for them in their lives. Mm. They don't allow men to do things for them. They don't ask for help. They, um, they emasculate and it's unintentional. You know, it's like, I don't need a man. I'm good as I am. And having a man by your side and all the things that you've shared about having somebody who is a feminist, who is a good listener, who is sensitive, but he's also protective. He's also has kids who are self-reliant. He's done a good job raising them. I mean, these are all things to pay attention to. And um, I just, I'm wondering if you have any other takeaways that you hope people will learn from your book and your story. Well, um, my dedication in my book is to my mother who taught me it's never too late to learn to love. I realized it wasn't for me, just that there were no men out there, that I really wasn't clear on how, what it meant to love because it hadn't been instilled in my family. And the fact that my mother fell in love late, she only had a short time with this man, but it was a cherished time, um, made me realize I had a lot of self-loving to do and other loving to do before I would really be ready for reciprocity of love and, and bonding. I had a real attachment disorder. I was like Teflon for real attachment. But then with unavailable people, I had a Velcro. I was like hooked onto them, to pleasing them, to dancing for them, to seducing them. So, um, you know in your own soul whether you're loving or not. And I think that's the first thing to work on. Work on it with, with animals, with babies, with helpless people. Find the love in yourself, the empathy and the love. And that is a good, strong pathway to take to learn to love and receive love from someone else. Beautiful. Uh, the attachment stuff is so huge. I'm actually covering, I, I talk about attachment a lot in my coaching pra practice because how we, how we grew up is how we attach until we do the work, until we really become more secure within ourselves. We are attracted to men who are completely unavailable or who are super clingy and drive us crazy. And so just working on that alone is huge. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you so much, Melanie. It's just been so inspiring. And uh, let, let people know how they can find you. 
Well, I have two websites, but charismatizing, as in hypnotizing.com, is my website for charisma coaching. And I work with actors and introspective and, and uh, extroverted people who don't know how to listen, who don't know how to viscerally listen and be present for others. So I calibrate everybody to be ambi, ambi personality, so they can be recessive and listen and be permeable when necessary or when they can take over the room when it's necessary to put their ideas across, crucial to put their ideas across. Charismatizing.com, you can reach me through that site. And I'll have a, a link for my book, which is going up on Amazon now in Audible, Kindle, and, and um, book form. And um, my other site for my career, um, which has been massive, is MelanieChardoff.com. And my book is called Odd Woman Out, and it's on Amazon now for pre-sale, but it won't be available till February. Okay, and this show will air in January, so Great. Um, people can pre-order. Um, well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate hearing your story. It's, it's inspirational to me, and I'm sure to our listeners. And um, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you love our show, please rate and review us. And leave a five-star review. We love those. That helps us be found by more people and get more listeners. And we hope you go on your last first date very soon. Bye.